You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westbca.com. That is all of the announcements that we will highlight tonight. We want to turn to Judges chapter 7, where we're continuing our series in this book, Gideon's Defeat of the Midianites. Would you stand as we read God's word, Judges 7? If you are able to stand, please stand. Early in the morning, Jerubal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. Announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water. And I will sift them for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. The Lord there told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred men lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and the trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled into the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped God. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. 
The three companies blew their trumpets and smashed their jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon! While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Beth-Shittah towards Sarah as far as the border of Abel-Maloha near Tabith. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Bethbara. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they took the waters of the Jordan as far as Bethbara. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. This is the word of God. Please be seated. There is a scene in one of the old Superman movies in which Clark Kent, alias Superman, has just regained his powers. He had lost them for a time for some reason. I'm not sure. I can't remember why. But he's got his powers back again, and he walks into this diner where he encounters this arrogant, sneering bully who had beaten him up when he had lost his powers. And this time, the audience knows it's going to be different. Clark Kent walks in, in his unassuming, typical way, looking and acting like like a weakling, like a nerd. And immediately, this bully begins to pick a fight with him. And first, he punches Clark Kent in the stomach with his power blow and cringes because it's been it's like hitting an iron steel um, plate. But, of course... Uh, doesn't hurt Clark Kent at all. And then he goes to punch him in the face, and Clark simply puts up his super hand and stops the punch, you know, twists his hand some way and throws him across the room, and that's the end of the bully. And he's lying there across the room just looking utterly bewildered, and Clark Kent makes this motion like he's been working out. Of course, the guy doesn't know that it's really Superman. And you can tell this bully is thinking to himself, what has changed this man of fluff into the man of steel that he seems to be? Well, that kind of story is somehow very satisfying to us. We like our heroes strong and omnicompetent. Give us John Wayne or Clint Eastwood cleaning out the bad guys. Somehow, we know they can do it no matter how bad the odds are against them. But, if you know the Bible at all, you know that that's... Not the way God works through his people in advancing the kingdom of Christ. No, the only hero in God's work is God himself. And the principle we find throughout scripture is that God delights to bring glory to his name by bringing about his purposes through weak and failing human instruments. God delights to show his glory in human instruments weakness. 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. There's that familiar passage that says, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. And Paul can write in 2 Corinthians 12 about his thorn in the flesh and that terrible experience and that hardship that Paul endured. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest upon me. There are no superman heroes in God's kingdom, of course, except for the God-man, Jesus Christ. But even when we think about Jesus Christ and his work, we know that he did not triumph using superman-like powers. Instead, he submitted himself to the weakness of the incarnation and the ignominy and the agony and the sacrifice of the cross to bear our sins and yet to triumph in and through that very weakness and to be vindicated in the resurrection. So, Christian life and Christian ministry does not follow the pattern of Superman. No, it follows the pattern of the cross and of Jesus Christ with the power of God at work in human weakness. And this evening we see this theme clearly in Gideon and this victory over Midian. I want us to look at this in three brief points. First, God's strength in our weakness should humble us and glorify God. God's strength in our weakness should humble us and glorify God. Notice in verse 2 that we have the description of why God does what he does here at the beginning of Gideon chapter of Judges 7. It says there that the Lord said, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. And so he goes about whittling down the army. God is saying, I don't want you to have any reason to boast in yourself. Your army is too big. I'm going to do it another way. And this really, this theme of weakness is a theme that is throughout the Gideon narrative as we've been looking at at it over the past few weeks. We saw in chapter 6, at the beginning of chapter 6, this picture of the nation of Israel utterly weak, so beset by the Midianite enemy harassing them that they had to take back paths and back roads. They couldn't even use the main roads of those days. And then we find in Judges 6.15, when God calls Gideon to serve him in this way, we see that, that Gideon was from the weakest clan in Manasseh and that Gideon says he is the least in his family. So Gideon's lack of status and Gideon's relative obscurity, he was weak in that sense. And then we saw that God commanded him to tear down the altars of Baal and Ashtra in his hometown. How does Gideon go about that? In weakness. We find he does it at nighttime because he's too much afraid of what the townspeople might do to him. He's weak. 
And then there's this famous story at the end of chapter 6 about Gideon and the fleece and the request about the dew. We saw what that meant. But again, Gideon's weakness was revealed. He needed extra assurance. And here in chapter 7, we find more of this weakness theme. In verses 3 through 8, we see how God thins the army out. First, he says, tell anyone who's afraid that they can go back to their homes. And so uh, we lose 22,000, about two-thirds of the army goes home. 10,000 are left. And then there's this very famous incident of, of whittling down the rest of the 10,000 to 300 by the way that they drink. Now, let me say something about this. Sometimes it is thought that the way these soldiers drank somehow showed something about their character and their, uh, their virtue and how alert they were. But the text doesn't say anything about that. It doesn't say that the 300 chosen were somehow the best soldiers. No, all that we can tell from the text is that this was God's mechanism to whittle down the army from 10,000 to 300. It wasn't like God wanted, you know, that movie that was out the other uh, month, the 300 Spartans, and they were the best of everybody. I didn't actually see that, but it, you know, it sounded like these were warriors, you know, beyond imagination. No, these were just, this was just simply God's mechanism to make sure that it was a very small number that was left. So God reduced them. And then we see this theme of weakness in the way the battle was carried out as well. These soldiers we read in the text simply carried uh, this hidden torch that they broke the jar around it and a trumpet in one hand. That means they didn't have enough hands to carry their sword, right? They were surrounding the camp. They really didn't actually attack. Later on, they did pursue and they attacked in that sense. But at the main battle itself, all that they did was break the jar and blow the trumpet and cry out for the Lord and for Gideon. And notice that we find in verse 22 that when they did that, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. It was the Lord's doing. It was the Lord's victory. God used this weak army to carry out his purpose. Gideon is weak. The nation of Israel is weak. And that's how God wants it. Why? Because Israel's tendency and our tendency as well is to glorify our own efforts, to somehow take pride in our so-called strength. But God will not share his glory with another. God, working through human weakness, humbles us and gives the glory to God. And that's why God so often chooses unlikely instruments to accomplish his purposes. It's his normal manner. Many of you have heard me tell my testimony and my story, but I'll share it here again tonight, just in brief. Just the fact that as a child, as a young man, I stuttered so badly, I couldn't make a phone call. I couldn't ever get up to speak in front of groups. I remember my speech class in 10th grade, my three-minute speech took me seven minutes to give, but the class was very kind to me. And so when I began to enter the ministry, I thought for sure that the Lord would sovereignly take this away and that I would just be able to preach fluently. Well, he didn't do that. So there were many discouraging post-sermon experiences for me. 
feeling like, oh, Lord, I'm so weak. This is I'm so stumbling in the way I speak. I would work with my speech therapist and, you know, I hated to listen to the tape of myself preaching, but I'd listen and count. Oh, that had 300 stutters in it. Ah, I want to cut it down to 100 or something like that. And, and yet my church was the congregation was so kind to me in those years. But. God's purpose was apparently to slowly allow my stuttering to improve over 30 years. Now you hear me preach and you hear me stutter sometimes. And I know still God humbles me with that. But the clear message I feel like that, that has been for me is that I'm very much more aware that all glory goes to God. That he's the one who is at work because I am such a weak speaker. I'm not, you know, one of those superstars that can mesmerized with speech but the point is god gets all the glory and that's just one example of that just think of many people like that think of johnny erickson and her quadriplegic status who would have guessed that god would use somebody in a wheelchair like that in such a powerful way to touch so many lives with the gospel or think of the famous preacher charles spurgeon who struggled throughout many of the years of his life with gout and as a result of that gout he struggled often with deep depression and, and wrestled against that. You would never know that if you didn't know about his life because he's so famous as such a powerful expositor of God's word. Or think of Amy Carmichael, that famous missionary to India. She died in 1951. But think about the last 25 years or so of her life as an invalid almost completely from a fall that she had. And you would wonder why would God work that way? She was so effective in what she was doing. Why she has to be laid up on a bed of affliction in a room for 25 years. But God used that in pouring forth of her writings and her influence that continued there in the children's orphanage there. Again, through weakness. And so I say, what about you and what about me? We need to understand God's normal way of working. It's not just that we may feel weak or we may not feel weak. No, it's not just the way we feel or don't feel, but that's what we are. We are weak and in desperate need for God's power to be revealed in our weakness. And then he gets all the glory, and that's very, very good. And you and I are set free by his grace to no longer care about getting the praise. Of course, we never quite arrive there. We're still worried about what others think. We still fall into that kind of sin. But God continues to humble us and to free us to live for his glory. So that's the first point. Secondly, God's strength in our weakness should encourage us. God's strength in our weakness should encourage us, especially in the face of our fears. We don't have to be a superwoman or a superman. Notice what the text says about this. Here, before the battle takes place, in verses 9 through 15, we see this interesting incident that takes place. During the night, before the attack, the Lord says to Gideon, verse 9, Get up, go down against the camp. In other words, attack the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. There is assurance from God. And then he says this interesting sentence. If you are afraid to attack... Go down to the camp with your servant, Purah. Now, I think that's a humorous thing. Gideon, if you are afraid, if, this is Gideon. Yes, I'm going down there. There's no doubt. 
Attack the camp, but Gideon, if you're afraid, Gideon needed encouragement in the face of his fear. And so uh, he goes down and uh, takes his servant Pur with him. And uh, the description there in verse 12 that the Midianites and the Malachites are as thick as locusts swarming in that area of the world. Apparently locusts sometimes swarmed. You know, you couldn't even see through them. They were like a cloud on the earth. And that's what these enemy armies were like. So it looked bad for the 300 against this force. And then in verses 13 and 14, there's this story of this Midianite private who has this dream about this bread loaf hitting the tent, knocking it down, and he gives the interpretation that this is the Lord speaking that Gideon is going to, God's delivering the army of the Midianites into Gideon's hands. God uses an enemy private to encourage Gideon with a word from him so that he doesn't fear and he goes ahead with the attack. That's the greatness of our God. But the point is that God uses fearful and uncertain servants like you and like me and makes them able to stand. God knew Gideon's fears. The Lord knows the fears of his people, and he's not harsh with us when we hesitate and when we tremble. And he doesn't mock us, and he doesn't ridicule us, and he doesn't cast us off in our weakness. No, he is our strength. And he works with us just like he worked with Gideon. And he encourages us through his word of promise to us as well in the gospel. What are the applications to our lives? We just think of one. Has God led you to some new sphere of service or some ministry or outreach? Or is he working in your heart in some way? We heard these testimonies about adoption and just thinking about how he continues to work in us in the spheres he's placed each of us to use us for his glory. Maybe in small ways that, you know, it's not going to make World Magazine necessarily, but uh, are we hesitant maybe about serving the Lord in some way or fearful, painfully aware of how weak we are and how failing we are? You don't have to pretend with God, you see. You don't have to hide these things from him. You can go to him and pray about these things and tell him very directly, Lord, I am so weak. And he delights to answer those kind of prayers. And he will encourage you. Again, not by making you a superman, but by growing your faith in him and like Gideon, reassuring you through his word. The third point is this. God's strength in our weakness also applies corporately. It applies to the body of Christ, to the church. In other words, God in his grace works through a weak church. Chapter 8, we didn't take the time to read it all, but we're briefly going to highlight just one or two things from there as well. Because there we read about the pursuit of this fleeing Midianite host of still apparently 15,000 men. And this is the mop-up operation. But two glaring weaknesses come out as chapter 8 unfolds. One is in chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, and that is the anger of the tribe of Ephraim. They, uh, they come out and they've done what Gideon has said, but after the, uh, the fight has gone by their area there, and they were supposed to be at the Jordan and uh, kill any of the enemy that came to the forge there. 
but they're really upset about this. And they complain to Gideon, why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they criticized him sharply. And you get the idea that there could have been a fight here when Gideon was trying to pursue the enemy. There could have been a fight among the people of God. And Gideon answers them very diplomatically. What have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape harvest of Abiezar? I love that. That's like saying, isn't, isn't the leftover corn in your field, after you've harvested the corn, isn't that more than my field before it's harvested? That's really what he's saying. He's being very diplomatic here. It's not like a politician, the way he speaks. He probably made a good politician. But anyway, he calms Ephraim down. But at the moment when Gideon and his 300 men are supposed to be pursuing the enemy, what are they doing? They're trying to do peacemaking and damage control among the tribes of Israel itself. Here's Israel fighting among themselves when they're supposed to be about kingdom work. Does that remind you of anything? Does that remind you of the church? To be united in carrying out what Jesus Christ has called us to do, but we know what happens in the church. And then there's a second evidence of weakness with the leaders of Succoth and Peniel, these two towns in verses 4 to 9. These are two communities on the east of the Jordan, so they were more in harm's way to these Midianite tribes. But as Gideon pursues these 15,000, and again, picture here, the 300 are pursuing 15,000. And they come to this town of Succoth, and they and Gideon asks for some food, and the leaders of the town won't give him any food. And Peniel, the same thing. They won't help them. Why is that? Because the leaders knew, well, if the battle doesn't go the way we think it's going to go here, the Midianites are going to be back through here with deep reprisals if they find out that we helped Gideon and his troops. So essentially, these Israelite towns did not want to help their fellow Israelites because of fear, fear of reprisals. They didn't want to risk their own skins. But they should have helped them. They were brothers. They were fellow Israelites. And so we see Ephraim concerned with their own status. We see the towns of Succoth and Peniel concerned for their own security, both bringing disunity to the people of God and hurting the cause of God's kingdom. And isn't that very typical for the New Testament people of God as well? We know that it is. If you've worked in the church or with the church for any length of time, the church of Jesus Christ is constantly beset with disunity and division of various kinds. No church is immune from it. And that in itself is a great weakness. I remember when our son Steve got back from Uganda from a two or three month mission trips a couple summers ago and saying to us, boy, it's amazing that God does anything through missionaries anywhere. It's just amazing because he saw firsthand the kinds of disunity, the kind of division that was there, even among those who love the Lord. So we know that God works through the corporate body of Christ even with our weaknesses. The hymn, The Church's One Foundation, has a verse that says it this way, Though with a scornful wonder men see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, 
Yet saints their watch are keeping. Their cry goes up, how long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. The hymnist is speaking about the state of the church, the church militant now, looking forward to the church triumphant when we will together be with the Lord in glory. But until then, here we are, racked by schisms, by heresies, by all kinds of things. That's weakness. But what the Bible is telling us is God's strength is made perfect in his people's weaknesses. Not that we use that as any kind of excuse for our sinfulness, but that we be encouraged. Thanks be to God that this is the way he works through us as individuals, through his corporate body. May you take encouragement this evening from the God of Gideon. And may it all be to the praise and honor of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are such a God who works through weakness. And we thank you especially for the good news that through the weakness of the cross, uh, you turned things completely around and brought out of that such a great good thing, our salvation through Jesus, dying for us and rising again. And we pray that you would help us to let that pattern be also in our lives, that we would be willing to be like that seed that's that's uh, put in the earth to die, that it might bring forth new life. Lord, we know that you call us to follow in his footsteps and to go in the strength that Jesus Christ gives. And we pray tonight, if there is anybody here who hasn't come to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, that you would help that person to even tonight consider the weakness and yet the glory of Jesus Christ dying on that cross and rising again. Thank you for your encouragement that you give us from your word. Send us forth rejoicing in your blessing, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's turn to our final hymn, 260.